Stack receivers, two to the right. Russell Wilson extends the hands he has. Pass. Wilson, quick throw. And it's good. Welcome back to the Patriot Nation podcast presented by SB Nation. We are the voice of Patriot Nation. I am Pat Lane, as always, and with me is Ryan Spagnoli. Spags, how are we doing, my man? I'm doing well, Pat. A um, little off topic, played your uh, alma mater in hockey this weekend. A uh, little weekend series up at uh, Assumption. Okay. Beat them the first night 3-2 to two, and uh, was up 4 to nothing in the second period on Saturday. I ended up losing 5-4 in regulation. So no. a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth from your alma mater. So. All right, little hounds. The hounds yeah. taking it to you a little bit. The hound pound. <laughs> That's crazy. So, well, this week, as you guys know, struggling. It's the bye week. We've got like almost two full weeks after the Patriots' last game, which was an absolute disaster. So just trying to get through it. Luckily – Yesterday, you guys had a ton of football. We're recording this before Thanksgiving, but you know, I'm sure it was great football all day. I'm sure you ate till you passed out on the couch, hopefully. Uh, not from the drinking, from the eating, maybe from the drinking too, but hopefully more from the eating. Uh, <laughs> passed out on the couch watching football. That's, I mean, like, what could be better than that? Nothing, man. Favorite holiday. <laughs> So, so it is the bye week. We do have a huge show for you today. On the on the show, we have Jeff Howe from the Athletic. Uh, he's talking about his new book, "If These Walls Could Talk," that he wrote with Scott Zolak. Uh, it's a really fun interview. We talk about the book obviously for a while, and then we do talk a little bit about you know the Patriots kind of moving forward for after the bye week. So, fantastic interview. Uh, so stick around for that. And uh, as a matter of fact, let's let's get right into it. So here is Jeff. From the Athletic. Okay, so we're going to welcome on Jeff Howe. He is the Patriots reporter for the Athletic. He used to be with the Herald. You guys, I'm sure, have been listening and following him for years. Uh, he's also got a new book written with Scott Zolak. If these walls could talk, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's get right into it uh, about the book. What's the genesis of the book? I mean, did you have the idea for the book and then go to Zolak? Did Zolak had the idea and come to you. Did you guys kind of come up with it together? Like, where did it come from? No, not nearly as interesting as any of that. Although, I mean, it was still a pretty good story. Uh, this was a Triumph Publishing has a series of these books. They've done it with a handful of other teams across the four major sports. And I got a call from you know somebody in their office saying that they were hoping to do a Patriots version of the book. They like to join up a writer with a radio personality. That's sort of like their their go-to format. That's what they found most successful. So they were like, Hey, uh, we want you to do it with Scott Zolak. Are you interested? And I'm like, I would only do it with Scott Zolak. And I've known right. Zoe for a handful of years now. We've always gotten along really well. We have pr- very similar personalities. Uh, and I thought if Zoe was down for that, uh, I would totally be up for it. I mean, it's 
I've kind of always wanted to write a book. I thought this would be a fun way to do it, and I thought we'd be able to write a different one, or a different type of Patriots book. It's not just a straight history or anything like that that's been done before. So I called up Zoe, and a couple conversations later, convinced him to do it, and here we are. That's really cool. That's very, it's very interesting and, and pretty awesome that they reached out to you kind of shows, uh, you know, the respect that you have, you know, not only in the Patriots beat, but also around the country. So, um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty nice little feather in your cap for that one. Um, yeah, thanks. I mean, it was, it was fun. It was a good opportunity and I was certainly glad that they did it. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a fun project. I knew it would be a fun project and it absolutely turned out that way. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Um, and one of the things, and you said it's a, a little bit of a different book, and I will say one of the things that I've been I've been pleasantly surprised about um, is that it doesn't follow a specific timeline. It's not like okay, in 1992, here's what happened. Okay, 1991, Scott Zolak was drafted, and then it's like it goes through different stories of different people. So you have the Zolak, and then it goes to Parcells, and then it's Kraft, and then it's Belichick, and so. You're telling some of the same, not that you're telling the same stories over again, but some of those stories come back again, but it's almost like you're telling it, you're telling each person's story individually and combining it all together. I thought that was really, uh, really an interesting way to do it. Yeah, I mean, it was because, again, there's been so many books written about the Patriots over the years, especially we know who all the, the principles of the story are and, and our big thing was we wanted to do it differently. And I love telling anecdotes, you know, the, the story behind the story. And if you can string enough of those together, then you can kind of bring a timeline along with it. But for us, it was more important to just kind of, we wanted the reader to just have this experience. Like me and Zoe were just sitting there, you know, swapping stories back and forth. And again, trying to bring, not necessarily a timeline to it, but, you know, you able to bob and weave in through, you know, throughout history. And yeah, there was a chapter about Zoe because I thought his story was integral to what we were trying to do here. And he's got a really cool background story as well. I mean, growing up and playing for his father and Joe Montana's hometown, and there's some really cool stuff there, but we're really able to lead the book with Zoe's arrival in Foxborough 20, you know, a quarter century ago. And you kind of bring that into how basically it was a JV organization at best. But right. Zoe's arrival sort of coincides with just how in the, down in the dumps the Patriots were as a franchise. And then he arrived a year before Parcells and, and Bledsoe and you know, then Kraft comes along, and then obviously it brings you into the 21st century. And it was just sort of a natural flow to everything that we wanted to do. And we were able to, you know, again, link everything through anecdotes along the way. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting story with uh, with uh, McPherson, how McPherson had tried to recruit Zolak um, in college and then, you know, wasn't able to do it and obviously drafted him into the pros. And I thought that that was um, that that was interesting. And so it was really that was really kind of a fascinating story for me to kind of look at and say, oh, OK. And I do think McPherson, it seems like was a really interesting guy. I thought the, you know, the one quote that he had and I don't want to go into too much depth. I want to talk about the book a little bit, but, you know, we'll save it for the for the reader. Um, 
But I just thought the McPherson quote where he said, you know, I'm going to give you three rules for going out. I want you to enjoy the first, skip the second, and refuse the third. And he goes, your problem is you always get confused between two and three and start over at one. And I was just like, if that doesn't perfectly do- – now, I've never met Zolak per- – well, I've never, like, hung out with Zolak personally. But if that doesn't describe Scott Zolak to a T, like, I can't imagine anything else describing him. Well, and McPherson as well. Like, it was just such a perfect story right. with bo- the both of them. But, you know, Zoe is just such uh, a larger-than-life figure uh, in the New England sports scene for a million different reasons. But, you know, the cool thing about him is everything you would expect him to be, everything you, you hear on with him on the radio or, or see on TV, that's who he is as a person. You know, it's not just some personality. That is, that's who Zoe is. He's not just sitting there playing a character. He's a genuinely right. good guy who knows how to have a really good time. And, you know, he's a a perfect combination of all of it. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think, too, you know, there is some talk. I, I saw Zolak on, uh, I think it was like Sports Extra or something like that, Sunday night, and he was talking about the book. But it doesn't leave out parts. You know, it talks about everything. It talks about, you know, the incident at the Everclare concert and stuff, which, but I think that's important, too, to give the whole picture as to what was going on. And so it's not like some puff piece it's like this is what happened and it's the real story which i think is which i think is uh makes it more interesting for everyone to read you know yeah he wasn't he wasn't uh, hiding behind or you know shying away from that story we had to bring it up and or at least i had to bring it up when i was talking to him about it and and, you know how are we going to address this and all that other stuff uh you know it's still it's it's a tough story to go back to because somebody was hurt and there was some fallout from it, but it was a significant moment during that era. And and again, Zoe was very candid about it. Right. One of the th- one of the things about um, about the candidness about it, and it was, you know, a part with Junior Seau, and we were talking about it a little bit beyond um, off air, but it, it almost makes you cringe when you think about it. But again, this is how football is played. But you know, he's talking about they call them the pile jumper. You know, and they're just showing video of Sam Gash and uh, I think it was Perkins, who was who's kind of the inventor of this whole offense that's still going on to this day. Um, you know, Turner and Gash just pounding him and his head snapping back, and it's just like bam, bam. And I'm just like, and I'm reading it like, and obviously you know what happened with Seau, and and obviously it bring you know you guys mentioned that in the book, but it was just. It, it you know it brings you back into that you know remembering like oh my goodness, like this is, you know, this is football. Like that's just life, you know? Yeah, and Kevin Turner as well, unfortunately. I mean, it was a tough, right. sad sad story for both of those guys in their post-playing careers. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a natural illustration of what football was like in the 90s. And there were, you know, a lot of tough parts that, people didn't understand at the time and, and you know you hear about it now and in hindsight it's, it is tough to hear but again it's not like you can just rewrite history you know you got to talk about these it's a, it's an inside look at the game planning or the meeting rooms and the you know the post game and all that other stuff and and what life was like on a football field in the 90s and obviously a long time before then as well but uh, that's just that's the era of football that Zolak grew up in right Jeff, um, you talked a little bit about Zolak and, you know, his personality. I, um, I haven't met him yet, but I'm a huge fan just because of his presence on the radio. And just like you said, it seems like a great guy, like larger than life type type of guy. 
Um, <clears throat> quick question, like, do you have any Zoe stories that, you know, didn't make the book that you might <clears throat> kind of give us a chuckle out there? I mean, I'm not saying go too into depth, but I don't know if there's any kind of some stories out there that are pretty funny that, you know, maybe didn't make the book. I mean, my, uh, <laughs> when I think of Zoe, so this is, this is great. And he won't mind me telling this cause this is funny. Uh, so the last couple of years, when the Patriots made it to the Super Bowl, 98.5 throws a, a party on the Saturday before the game on location. And I've gone to the party the last you know couple times, and it's always a really good, really, really cool crowd. The party is great. 98.5 does an awesome job with it. And it's always packed. I mean, just wall-to-wall with people. And they all they all love Zoe. But, like, they'll host their pregame show there. Not the pregame show, but, like, the whole Saturday show. It's on air and everything. And well, a bunch of us will go up as guests, and you know, I think Jim Murray and Hardy are usually the hosts. Uh, Bertrand is usually there, you know, a college friend of mine. And you know, the, again, there's the the crowd goes wild for Zoe. So anytime, so like it's so crowded. It's like one of those things where the vibe is good. It's fun to be at, but it's so crowded that if you have to try to get to the bathroom, the bathroom's on the other side of, of the building. It it can take you like a half hour, and you're just like, I don't even know if I want to. to do like you know I'm just gonna go find a corner or something like that. It's like one of those types of situations. But so like you're you know shoulder to shoulder and it's a bunch of Boston people. So obviously you can't go around bumping shoulders. You end up in a fight in the middle of the place. Zolak needs to go and the sea will just part for him. He starts walking <laughs> through and everybody just pushes to the side. It's like Moses. And then not just that, but you know he'll take a detour and he'll just go over to you know. The other thing is it happens a handful of times at these parties where the whole crowd just starts going, Zoe, 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 Zoe. So he'll, you know, start playing along with it. And he'll start cheering and everything. Two times now at these parties, I've seen him just go up to a random table and, like, jump into the middle of them and just start chanting his own name to get his own, his own cheer started. I mean, that's <laughs> – it's just amazing to watch him go up to the middle of a table just a bunch of strangers and just start cheering his own name so 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 pounding on the table and everything i mean the guy can take over a room of of hundreds of people it seems like his personality I, I, i'm not surprised that's great yeah yeah he's, he's just a blast that's really fun that's cool so i did want a few more things about the book and i, I just think um the the Zoe when Zoe first initially met Kraft, and you know there's a lot made about you know Brady and Brady walks down and it, it's funny you added a little thing that Brady was um, carrying a box of pizza which I had never heard of when Kraft first met him and um, obviously you know you wrote it in the book I'm sure it's true but I had just I had never heard that that part of it and it was just like a little added thing that I was like oh I never knew he was carrying pizza when he said that but you know of course everyone knows you know Brady's like I'm the best decision this organization ever made and you know, Zoe Metcraft in 92, a year before he bought the stadium. And he said, you know, introduce himself. And he's like, you know, one day I'm going to be the owner of the Patriots. And he's like, okay. And, you know, he owned the stadium a year later, bought the team a year after that. And in 1994, had the idea for Patriot Place in his head already. 15 years before anyone even imagined something like that could happen. And so, um, I just thought that that was really fascinating and you gave, gave a really good in-depth look into, you know, behind the scenes with Kraft and kind of his moves to buy the team and, you know, and what that kind of looked like. I thought that was fascinating. 
Yeah, I mean, Kraft called a shot, what, a decade before Brady even called his shot. So he was, uh, I think that's why these two guys are, they're like kindred spirits. But uh, yeah, I mean, Zoe was sitting there, and and I can't remember if this was right before his first NFL start against the Colts or or whatever, but it was right around that time, and Kraft walks up, and you know, he's just sort of hanging around. He's one of those guys who was able to be around the team because of his connections and, and, you know, obviously buys the parking lots and the land around there. You know, he's got he's got some good connections there, and, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to buy the team one day. And then, like you said, the other – and somebody – Marty Moore told me this story like 10 years ago, and I was just writing a story about Moore and, like, you know, looking back as being Mr. Irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, you know, we sit, we're all sitting there in these awful meeting rooms, you know, watching film on bed sheets and, you know, in showers that, you know, one out of every five of them works. And oh and goodness. one out of every fifteen has warm water, and Kraft is sitting here. He, he unveils these plans that not only am I going to build a new stadium, but I'm going to put a state of the art outdoor mall right next to it. And the whole place is like, okay, yeah, you know, let's let's get some hot water here first. Mm-hmm. So just the the foresight to to know that he had that plan and to put it in place as quickly as he did. I mean, you talk about fifteen years, but fifteen years is not that long of a, a time if you think about the construction of a stadium with the private funding and for a team that could have very realistically moved if Kraft didn't win the ownership and just you know that the presence the Kraft had and like I said the foresight and then the Kraft chapter too is you know he gave me uh, I want to say about an hour of his time to really go over a bunch of stuff and and how he came up in the business world and then was able to take control of all the assets around the stadium and, and the team and well, the stadium itself. There was a lot of really, really cool stuff uh, that the craft gave for that chapter. So that was, you know, again, it just sort of goes back to, can we tell this thing a different way? Uh, you know, there's just to keep plugging stuff like the Brady chapter. I thought the Brady chapter was going to be the hardest one to write because there's been so much stuff already written about Brady. I was able to tell, or we were able to tell some stories that have never been printed before. And and it's not just one or two or three. I mean, there's a handful of great, great Tom Brady stories that, I mean, if you only read one chapter, and whether you're a, an old school Patriots fan or more of the new age, and, and, you know, you just want to read one little snippet in history, I'm telling you, I think the Brady chapter is worth it alone. Yeah, that's cool. That's really, I'm telling you, I mean, it's, and you, you know, you brought it up a few times, but just the way, you know, you have it split out so that you're talking about specific players and specific moments in time, I thought was really fascinating and and really makes for an interesting read because you're like, okay, I'm reading about Parcells and now I'm reading about Kraft and then I'm reading about Brady and I'm reading about Belichick. And so it was really, um, I thought that that was really fascinating. And so, um, but we did, you know, you mentioned Kraft and Kraft obviously is one of the three guys that saved the Patriots franchise. You obviously know, you, know, you mentioned that that they would have gone to St. Louis and they had plans to go to St. Louis. Um, but really, I think, you know, Bledsoe, who does the forward, and Parcells are the other two guys that saved the franchise. I know, you know, Belichick and Brady have, have won five Super Bowls and gone to aid and all this other un- unbelievable stuff. But without Parcells and Bledsoe, this region just doesn't care about football as much as they do now. And I get that, you know, Brady kind of brought even more people in, but Parcells put butts in the seat 
back in 1993 when nobody cared about the Patriots. Um, and he did that along with Bloodsoe. And even just those few years he they were together, um, that really turned the team around and turned them into a legitimate franchise. And honestly, I think butting heads with Parcells might be the most important thing that's ever happened to Robert Kraft because Kraft, you know, wanted to run the team. He was like, he wanted to run it. And he had the argument with Parcells and things didn't work out. And I think he looked at it and said, I need to reevaluate the way I'm doing this and the way I'm owning this team. And without what he did with Parcells, I don't think Belichick has as much success here because I don't know if he gives them all the reins and takes a step back and says, you know, it's all on you. And so I think that those are things that maybe aren't, People don't think about quite as much, but you do a really good job of highlighting that in the book, I thought. Yeah, thanks. I mean, there's, there's like you were saying, the, the key figures from the 90s, Kraft buying the team uh, shortly after the arrival of Parcells, or whatever the, the timeline was there, sorry. Uh, Parcells, Bledsoe, Kraft, I mean, basically all showed up within a very short time period there. And the, picking Bledsoe was... <laughs> I mean, you know how hard it is to get the right quarterback, and it was Bledsoe Meyer, Bledsoe Meyer, Bledsoe Meyer. And there was a point when – I don't remember if I put this in the book or not, but I wrote something about the 25-year anniversary of drafting Bledsoe number one overall uh, a few months back in April. And, you know, when Bledsoe visited the Patriots, uh, I think the only time, at least out here in Foxborough, he he was flying back to Washington, and he was like, get me to the Seahawks. You know, I want to play for the Seahawks. It was his hometown team. And, you know, it it could have gone a completely different direction. And people weren't really sure. They're to- very different um, college quarterbacks and everything, both extremely talented. But the Patriots nailed it. And then having Parcells gave you legitimacy. A team that was, what, about a half decade of just atrocious football, uh, winning – a game or two a year, basically, had a terrible locker room scandal with a female reporter in the early 90s. Yes. Uh, they were the laughing stock of the league. You know, they had their waves in the 70s and 80s, but it just never was sustainable. So Parcells, and I remember, you know, I grew up in Lowell. I was born in 83, so I was about 10 when all this started to happen. But I remember being in my aunt's living room when it was announced or I first heard it, uh, because I have some family members who were season ticket holders, but those who weren't obviously wanted to watch the games. And this was like the first time right after Parcells and Bledsoe show up that they weren't going to be blacked out in the local market for an entire season. I remember like the genuine excitedness or excitement, just made up a word there, excitement <laughs> uh, of of just like the local fan base that, you know, this is a team that you were going to be able to finally be able to watch. And then with Kraft and like you were saying, the lessons that he learned from Parcells, if if he doesn't learn those lessons and he's admitted it, you know, he certainly would not have been able to uh, help advance the organization. I mean, you look at, uh, you know, these are my words and not crafts, but you look at what Jerry Jones is doing in Dallas and, and he mm-hmm. is probably the biggest obstacle to their success because he's too hands-on. Craft uh, was never in that category of, of too much, but you know, who knows, maybe he could have or, or whatever. And, and the falling out with Parcells, and eventually realizing in 2000 that Belichick had to be his guy for all the reasons and, and basically giving him total authority 
to run the organization. Uh, and the, the term that the craft has used with me frequently, probably elsewhere too, is checks and balances. You know, he had to have the, the appropriate checks and balances. Every, you know, chain on the, uh, from, you know, in the hierarchy here had to be able to, to do what they needed to do appropriately. And, you know, sometimes as the owner, you have to find the best way to dole out that responsibility with himself included. So, yeah, it was a long learning process, but, and Belichick and Brady have advanced the organization into, you know, the elite in, in sports history. But like you were saying, I mean, if it weren't for those three guys in the early to mid nineties, uh, this team might not even exist. Yeah, no, it's a it's a fascinating situation. And, you know, when you go from the Parcells to the notorious BG and Pete Carroll, and it just is a, kind of a mess. But, you know, it's that's a whole nother thing. But I, I think, again, you do uh, you do a great job at, at kind of summing that all up. And I, I'm going to I want to let you uh, I want to let you I want to kind of let you give a final pitch. But there's two things that either if Zoe is listening, which I don't know if he will be, but if Zoe is listening, I want to say to Zoe, or I want to have you say to Zoe, first of all, my greatest memory as a Patriots fan, I was 10 years old watching the game against Minnesota where they came back and won. And I remember my dad, I was at the game with my dad. We, my dad's a season tickets forever. And um, I, mean, I was at the game with my dad and, and uh, he, when Matt Barr lined up for the field goal at the end of the first half down 20 to nothing, he said, if Barr kicks his field goal, they're going to win the game. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> whatever you say. And of course he kicks the field goal and they end up winning the game in overtime. But, you know, you talked about in the book, how Zoe says that no one ever gives him credit, but it was his idea to stick Bledsoe in the gun and Bledsoe attempted like something ridiculous, like 50 passes in the second half. And of course they end up winning uh, and they actually caught a touchdown pass to Kevin Turner in, in the corner of my end zone, which I never saw because I was 10 and everyone stood up and I missed it. But, um, <laughs> but that's like my, that's my favorite memory of all time. So thank you, Zoe, for that one. And like, screw you, Zoe, for Scott Seacules. My first ever home game was the Houston Oilers uh, with Warren Moon came in and they had played in Arizona the week before. And as a matter of fact, you talked about in Arizona, how Parcells had kind of lost it on the team and said, you guys suck. And what are you doing? And they came back and won that game. I remember Bledsoe like helicoptering in the air, but he got hurt in that game and couldn't play. And Zoe must've been hurt too, because it was my first ever game. And Scott Seacules was the starting quarterback. And they got absolutely murdered by the, by the Oilers. And I'm like, Really, my first career game with the brand new rookie number one pick is Scott Seacules gets the start. So I was like, oh, even Zoe would have been better than Zeke Seacules, but he must have been hurt that game too. So, but uh, you know, but anyways, he, that might have been around the time that he had the uh, the nasty high ankle sprain, and he went into some some pretty graphic details about how difficult it was to deal with that. But you know, you mentioned injuries. You had Bledsoe with the pin in the finger. I yep. mean. I remember that like it was yesterday, oh, yeah. and Zoe, because of how close he was with Bledsoe, gave some incredible uh, insides yeah. and inside look at just what it was like to watch Bledsoe try to get himself ready to play uh, through that. And there were times when he could and times when he couldn't. Uh, but, you know, just the, the stories from the 90s were just so fun because you know, Zoe was there. He, had, he was right there. And you, you talk about that, that long ball against Rod Woodson in the fog game uh, in the playoffs, uh, Terry Glenn in the first play of the game, they talked all week about Rod Woodson 
biting on uh, the first move early in the game and how Bledsoe and Terry Glenn were going to take advantage of it. And that was that playoff game that they won like 28-3 to or 28-6 to or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, you look at that run to that first Super Bowl appearance down in New Orleans. I know they lost it, but, man, there were some really, really cool stories from that time. And, you know, it wasn't just that. There, was, there, there were the stories from the Pete Carroll era and the not-so-great stuff, although that leads to some pretty fun stories as well. It's just, right. There were, there were a lot of really, really cool things that we were able to get through. Uh, in the you know opportunity to write this book and it was it was fun to do yeah no and it, and like i said it it shows on the paper you know it really does and and uh you know i can't recommend it highly enough for you know for anyone that's a patriots fan anyone that's interested in in that historical part of it because it does so many of these books go from belichick on Right. And this is like before craft on. And so that's, you know, that's definitely a different take on it. And that's, uh, you know, it, it's it's a different perspective. And like you said, it's not an outside perspective. It's all different stories and they're interesting stories. And a lot of them, you know, I mean, my dad's been a season ticket holder since 1967. He works at the Hall of Fame uh, part time. <laughs> And so, you know, and I've been, I've been in season ticket holder. My 16th birthday gift was a ticket to, in 2000. And so I've been going to pretty much every game and I know a lot. And there was a ton of stuff in here that I didn't know and never heard of before. And I'm sure he hadn't heard of before. So, um, you know, it's definitely, it's really, uh, it's really a good read. Thanks. And, and, you know, the other side of it is, I kind of mentioned it earlier, like it's not a history book. You know, th- this is all. Just it's not about just sharing stories. It was about the tone. We tried to keep it as lighthearted as possible, as conversational as possible. Uh, I mean, my dad told me he read the book in two days. So you know, it's it's one of those books that hopefully is an easy read for everybody because again, we tried to keep it as light and and conversational and conversational and fun as possible. Yeah, no, it's good. So Jeff, moving into some football um, talk. Um, Kind of a two-part question here. Um, you know, it's been reported all week that, you know, Rob Gronkowski will return, it seems like, for the first time in a while. Probably be around four weeks, I think, off the top of my head. Um, the question I have is, is pretty simple. Um, you know, it, it does look like he's lost a gear. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, he's not motivated anymore or he's, you know, been banged up. I guess that will we'll have to see after he comes back from the injury, but you know, how much longer does he have? And, you know, will he ever be as good as, as he has been in the past? Well, he was pretty damn good in that opener against the Texans. And to the point where, you know, I'm not afraid to admit it, even though it it looks, I look dumb in hindsight, but he had a chance. I thought an outside chance uh, to make a run at the MVP. And this was after that Texans game when I think he had like seven catches for 123 yards and that ridiculous touchdown and double coverage. And since then, I think he's had the combination of, look, he didn't get a whole lot of help. I mean, when Hogan and Dorsett were your starting two receivers with Edelman suspended and, uh, you know, the running backs weren't as involved as I think we all expected them to be at the start, teams were double and tripling him in their first three games to the tune of 70% of his routes. So he was getting a ton of attention, and then all of a sudden – I think the ankle was worse than we ever realized. And then you, you throw the back into the mix. That that when he – I saw him in the locker room. He came out of the training room. The, 
day that his back went on the injury report, and it was a Friday before whatever the first game was that he missed. I can't think of it off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah. He came out of that training room, and he looked you know, stiff as a board. And I was like, this looks strange. Like, something isn't adding up here. Like, this is not how he walks around. But the back wasn't on our radar because it wasn't on the injury report yet. I mean, it was coming out like an hour after this thing whole, this whole thing happened. So, I mean, the back is a legitimate, has been a legitimate issue. When he plays on Sunday against the Jets, assuming there's no setbacks, it's going to be 27 days in between games. They brought him on the trip last week, which tells me, even though, again, you know, I, I, I've said this elsewhere, but you know, they don't, they're the Seats that they sit in on their plane are not as uncomfortable as the ones that us common folks. Sit in. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You're yeah. still like you're not putting him on a plane if you think the back is is a serious, serious issue. The other side of that is is a guy who's had three back surgeries and it's been an issue already once. So is this 27 day layoff going to be enough to propel him to have six plus healthy games down the stretch? That's a, that's something we just can't answer. And then you talk about going forward and everything like that. I mean, he's the one who brought the retirement speculation on himself. I mean, he admitted it the night of the Super Bowl and that he was going to consider it. We all we don't have to go through, you know, the entire offseason again. But we uh, when when you start bringing it up on your own without being pushed in that direction, then, you know, that's something that is going to be a storyline every offseason for the rest of your career until you come out. And, and you completely squash it on your own. So, again, I don't know if that's something that Gronk knows at this point how long he how much longer he's going to play, but I, I think practically we, we as outsiders have to look at this as a year-by-year case for him. Right. I mean, I think that makes sense. I think it's a good point. You know, it's, it is, I mean, year-to-year, which is sad because for us it's he's one of those big pieces and – this offense is good without him, but it's not—it's not nearly as effective as it is with him, you know, as it is without him. So, I guess we'll see what happens. But um, you had mentioned Hogan and Spags and I after after the interview were going to do a, uh, you know, kind of a superlatives or an awards, I guess, at the midway point. And you're the most disappointing player on the team, and I think it's not really that close. Is Chris Hogan, and I just don't. I don't understand. And, you know, I was at the Tennessee game like half of New England was last <laughs> week. And uh, and I'll tell you, you know, he was on the field for 54 snaps and got zero targets. And most of the time, Malcolm Butler, who hit, who was the statistically worst cornerback in the NFL going into that game, was covering him. And Brady never even looked his way. And he was open a few times. And I just I don't understand what's going on. Is it is it something where Brady doesn't trust him? Is it something with Hogan? Like, is there anything that you can shed some light on as to what's going on over there? Yeah, actually, this is a great timing for the question because I watched every single one of Hogan's routes over the last two games just today uh, for a story that should be posting on Tuesday on the Athletics. So it was, you know, there's a combination of a lot of things. I think physically, he's still he's where he needs to be. You know, this isn't a guy who just is on the wrong side of 30 and then his legs fell off or anything like that. Uh, but I do think it's, you know, you look at uh, the Tennessee game. I mean, look at the last two games, no catches. I mean, this came out of nowhere because his three previous games were his highest yardage totals of the season. So he was playing good football. And again, there's no injury. There's no physical limitations from what I can tell. 
he has been open. You're completely right about that. He was open a lot against the Titans, especially Malcolm Butler. But there was, in my opinion, a reason why Brady wasn't really looking at him. He runs a lot of routes that take a while for him to get open, just because you know they're not really the quick hitters like James White, Julian Edelman are accustomed to running. So when you've got a Titans pass rush that is harassing Brady as frequently as it did uh, in that game, you know Brady didn't have the confidence to sit there in the pocket and wait to to hit Hogan in a timely manner. I mean, yeah, he was open, but you know what? Does Brady really want to hang on to the ball for a half second when? You know, there's an easier throw in front of them. So I think part of that is on Brady. You know, you got to try to trust your offensive line a little more, and the offensive line has to work better to earn that trust. Uh, you look at the, you know, I counted, I want to say, like 19 or 20 times in the last two games when Hogan was open and Brady could have hit him, but he went elsewhere. Out of every single one of those reps, it was, I think it was like eight, passes that he threw to Edelman, seven to Gordon, and it was like four or five to James White, whatever the total came out to be. So it's not like Brady is overlooking Hogan to go to, you know, the Dwayne Allens or Jacob Hollisters or Philip Dorsett's of the world. He's going to guys that he trusts, and there have been some cases when he's forced the ball to Josh Gordon. And again, those are some issues that Brady's going to have to work out. But uh, I think you know, there's another part of it where Hogan, when he doesn't get open, it's usually because he's on the boundary one-on-one against the cornerback, and that just doesn't suit his strengths. So, you know, you try to run some of those combo routes with, with Julian Edelman. You know, you look at the way the roles have sort of changed around over the last year, too. You know, you got Edelman more of in an Amendola role, and that puts Hogan into more of an Edelman role when he was more of an outside guy back in 2016. So, again, I think there's been an adjustment period, and I've already gone way too long about this, but there's a whole lot that goes into why I don't think Hogan's been catching the ball the last two weeks. I mean, yeah, too, in your, in your, you know, he's definitely not lost a step because he put up monster numbers in that Super Bowl. I think it was like uh, nine for 143 and a touchdown. I, I might have a mixed up, but I know he, I mean, he had some big yardage. I think he caught a touchdown in there, and that, you know, north of seven or eight catches, if I'm not mistaken, you know, so, I mean, if they get him back, even to half of what he was, it's going to make them, you know, so much more dangerous offensively, and without him going, it's been, you know, it's been, it's been frustrating to watch, because we know the capability he is as a player. Well, yeah, and, you know, he'll be a good complimentary piece. I mean, he's not, he's gotten, he's not a true number one, definitely not. Oh yeah. And and you know what? He had the chance to try to earn himself number two money in September and he wasn't really able to do it. So statistically or personally, you know, he's probably not going to have the year he wants, but he can still be a valuable member of, of, of this offense. If he's a complimentary piece as the fourth or fifth option. I mean, just look at Josh Gordon's 55 yard touchdown against the Packers. I mean, the entire defense sucked up because of the the fake screen to Hogan in the backfield. And that was because, you know, you look back at like 2015, I think is the most glaring example of it on the wrong side of, of, you know, when they had some injuries and Denver in particular, but right around that stretch late in the season, when they had some injuries, to their receivers and tight ends, there were like two or three, one or two guys on every single play when the defense would basically just ignore them. You know, you can't do that if Chris Hogan's your fourth or fifth option. So that's going to make you more well-rounded, you know, a better team overall. 
And again, physically, he's got enough. I just think the Patriots probably need to find some ways to to draw out or maximize what he can give you. All right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. So listen, we uh, so we're actually this is coming out Friday for you guys, but we are actually recording. A little peek behind the curtain here. We're recording on Monday night. So Kansas City is currently losing, although they are driving uh, against the Rams. Assume, let's just assume that they lose this game against the Rams. What do you think the Patriots' seeding looks like at the end of the year? Do you think they can sneak into the number one spot? Do you think, you know, they have the number two spot wrapped up? Assuming they win out, obviously that means they would beat the Steelers and they would get the number two seed. Are you confident about that? Um, or, you know, are you worried that they might end up as the three seed or, you know, perhaps even the four seed? Because right now everything's kind of close. Um so I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts there about, you know, at the end of the season. I think there's too much of a logjam right now to really know for sure. But if they win out, obviously you're more confident because they win in Pittsburgh, which would be huge for, you know, not just beating the Steelers, but kind of reasserting themselves as one of the one or two best teams in the AFC. But it also solves the road woes that they've been having. I mean, they've been three – They've lost three games on the road by three possessions. So they haven't even been competitive in some of these games. So they've got to prove a lot to themselves in the next six weeks before they get to the playoffs. And, uh, you know, again, I think the Chargers losing was a, a pretty big break. They could, they probably could have used the Jaguars not crapping all over themselves in the fourth quarter against the Steelers. But again, you know, you get to this point that they still have a chance to go out and earn it. I mean, they're, the Chiefs have a, a well-established history, Andy Reid himself as well, of, of really falling all over themselves down the stretch. So, look, it's, it's all out in front of them. And if they win their final six, which they're certainly capable of doing, I mean, Minnesota is at home. You know, that's where they play their best, obviously. And, you know, if they take care of business down in Miami and New York and, and they're able to beat Pittsburgh on the road, then, again, they're – probably going to erase all of the doubts that we've had or that they've shown themselves to have in the first 10 games. Right. No, it's a good point. And, and like you said, it is definitely a log jam, but it's, it's definitely, you know, you, you look back at the way they played against Tennessee and the way they played against Detroit, you know, when you just, and you look at it and you're like, man, these teams, they stink. They're just not that good. Like Tennessee is fine. Their defense is good, but their offense is dreadful. When they put up 34 points in the Patriots, and I think, I don't know, you know, I, I didn't look it up, but I'm, I'm just curious, you know, I don't know if anyone, you know, you know, looked it up or looked into it, but like a 24 point, losing by 24 points and not turning the ball over, that's like a monumental accomplishment. It's like, on, like it's unheard of, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, the only way they were able to find the end zone was giving the ball to a guy who hadn't carried the football in four years, so... <laughs> <laughs> when Josh McDaniels had a terrible day, everybody played bad. It was just, you know, you, there has been a, a parallel uh, or a, a theme, I think, in some of these losses. Obviously, they're on the road, but Jacksonville had a lot to prove to themselves because of the AFC Championship game. Detroit had a lot to prove because they were 0-2 and trying to play for Matt Patricia. Tennessee, all the Patriots storylines, all that stuff. I mean, these are three teams that came out fired up. They contained their energy – or appropriately and they were able to use it to their advantage 
while the Patriots sort of came out flat. They weren't able to execute. Sometimes the game plan wasn't great, and, and they just got run over. Right. No, it's true. I, I will say about Tennessee, that it was not – it may have been not as predictable as a game as there was the entire season when they went to, to Indianapolis on Sunday and just got their doors blown off. I just knew after a win like that, you know, it's it kind of like they gave everything they had in the Patriots game. They played unbelievably. And then to go on the road against the divisional opponent, the Colts are kind of trying to – were kind of finding their stride a little bit. And they just wiped the floor with them. And that was just like – I was – it made almost made it worse as a Patriots fan to just like – they just got annihilated by the Colts. And you're like, really? But, you know, that's the way it goes. Well, and then, you know, just to, to build off at that point, if the Patriots don't get the bye, if they do end up with three or the four seed and a, a team like the Colts gets into the playoffs and all of a sudden you're hosting a team like that the divisional rounds uh, or the wild card round, excuse me, then that's with Frank Reich and that offense and the way Andrew mm-hmm. Luck is playing. I mean, that's if you're opening the, the playoffs and the wild card rounds for the first time in uh, nine years, you know, that means that you haven't fixed everything down the stretch. And then you've run into an offense, once again, that has given you a ton of trouble, just that type of system, over the last few years. And that's going to be a scary playoff opener, uh, again, if they're not able to to fix some of these things over the next six weeks. All right. All right. Yeah, I agree. Well, listen, before we let you go, and, th- and thank you so much for coming on, and, and it was really fun the book number one, but then also about the season and kind of what's going on. But, uh, you know, before we let you go, just kind of plug yourself a little bit, obviously, you know, tell people where they can find the book and tell people where they can interact with you and, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you can get the book on triumph's website, uh, triumph publishing or, you know, whatever it happens to be. I mean, just Google if these walls could talk triumph. Uh, that's one way to do it. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's at Barnes and Nobles. If my mom hasn't bought them out of that store at this point, but they do restock, so you know you might you might get lucky. Uh, I'm on the Athletic. If you haven't, you know, gotten into the Athletic yet, I mean, I love the product that we have. Uh, a subscription. I mean, there's always some sort of discount that you can get into, but one subscription gets you access to the entire site, not just Boston, but all you know every sport that we cover across the country and into Canada as well. If you like the hockey coverage. Uh, I mean, my goodness, I, I, I'm in love with the product, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, check us out on the athletic and hopefully you can buy the book. I mean, my kids got to eat, so, you know, do it all. <laughs> Jeff, thanks again for uh, coming on and, uh, coach, uh, coach wall says you can scoop a mean ice cream. So whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, had to get, had to get by back in high school. So seven, uh, seven years of medals. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate it. And thanks for uh, plugging the book. Thank all you right, very anytime, much, Jeff. Jeff. Have a good one. Thank you. All right. All right. You too. See you later. So thank you to Jeff Howe of The Athletic for coming on the podcast this week. Um, you know, bye week, but, uh, you know, he easily could have, as we know, Pat, taken his bye week too and kind of take, uh, you know, took a break. And, you know, he was, you know, very, uh, very nice to take time out of his day to join our show. So we really appreciate that. Uh, one of the best Patriot reporters out there is definitely no lie sure. about that. So um, to kind of finish up the episode, we're going to get into some mid-season awards that uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into. Uh, Pat will explain them in a little bit, and we'll, uh, we'll give our take and go from there. So, Pat, why don't you uh, let us know the, uh, the awards we're going to be talking about? 
All right, so we got a little award time, and again, it's you know, it's not quite halfway. You know, we're ten games in, so only six games left. But you know, we're it's the bye week, so we're you know, it's, we're fudging it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so we have offensive player of the year so far. We have defensive player of the year so far. We have the most surprising player of the year so far, in a good way. We have the most disappointing player of the year. We in have a bad most, way. In a bad way, yes. We have the most underrated player of the year and the most overrated player of the year as well. So uh, let's get right into the offensive one. I mean, there's really no question here about the offensive player, uh, offensive player of the year. Of course, it's Chris Hogan. <laughs> it's uh, no, it's James White. Obviously, I mean, he's been dominant. He basically has been the offense with Gronk out, and uh, you know, there's, there's he's the clear number one choice for offensive player of the year so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we talk about him pretty much every show. He's been unbelievable, Mr. Reliable, you know, and uh, in those first four weeks, especially when they were really, really, um, you know, light at receiver, he took on a huge workload and, and it was just the leader of that offense doing it in, in multiple different ways. And uh, I always say, you know, I wrote it on my last piece on the pulpit, you know, uh, who, who really knows where this season would be if the Patriots didn't have James White, you know, performing yeah. at the level he has been. Yeah, very true. And uh, so defensive? Trey Flowers, again, you know, you maybe could have gone Gilmore here, but Trey Flowers just consistently over and over and over again every week. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, last week against the Texans was the first time he didn't have a pressure, I think, in, in like a year and a half. And so he's just – he's a dominant force on the defensive line. He does everything well. He rushes the pass or he defends the run. He's just – he's a great player. and uh, And so he's – you know, defensive player of the year so far. Absolutely. You know, can't agree more. Like I said, it's, he lives in the opposing team's backfield and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could say the same thing with him. Who knows where the Patriots season would be without Trey flowers and him, you know, causing some ruckus on that inconsistent kind of shaky defense so far. Right. Well, and that's a missed the, uh, the Detroit game, I believe. And that was, they got smoked in that game and they probably may lose with him too, but you could really see the impact of him not being in the game when he wasn't there. So yeah, um, that's defensive player of the year. Surprising. Again, this is in a good way. I think surprising for me, at least is Trent Brown. Trent Brown's just been, he's been a revelation at left tackle. The worst part about Trent Brown playing so well is that he probably won't be here next year uh, because he's going to get paid. This absolutely, yeah. Oh, uh, he has been an absolute beast. I mean, he's huge. He's what, like six eight, three hundred eighty pounds. He's a monster, but he's got pretty quick feet. He's decently mobile for for such a big guy, and he's done a really good job protecting Brady's blindside all year. And so, uh, you know, Brown is, I think, to me, has been uh, has been the most surprising player on the team. Definitely, and I mean, I could play devil's advocate here a little bit and disagree. And and uh, for me. You know, obviously Trent Brown's been great, but I mean, we know the talent this guy had coming in, and, and for me, it's Josh Gordon. I mean, just the history he had, and you know, he's basically traded for a bag of balls of just a fifth round pick, and you know, he's he's played well. I mean, um, I, I don't, I think he's a little bit uncomfortable in in the amount of route in, in the certain routes they've had him run, but I mean, for one thing, you know, he's he's showing up, and that 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 was half the battle with him. You know, seems like he's staying out of trouble, and you know, he's been a perfect patriot if you ask me so far he's handled the media great and it's surprising for me because like we said we, we we had no expectation for this guy coming in 100 percent, and and i think that that's a really good point 
And it, honestly, with Gordon, it's just, has he been here and not in trouble, like you said? And that's really kind of, and the bar is pretty low for him at this point. But, you know, with with the issues that he's had and him not really playing in the last few years, um, you know, that's really a big part of it. And obviously, he's been here. He's been a consistent target. Brady clearly trusts him and understands that he's a playmaker and can make some real plays. And so, uh, you know, I think I'd like to see, it's going to be interesting to see what he can do if Gronk does come back healthy and you have Gronk and Edelman and White out of the backfield and Gordon, and you're able to kind of take that extra pressure away from Gordon, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, um, you know, with this offense. And so I think that that's, that's an interesting, interesting kind of side note there. All right. So next up is disappointing. And we talked about Hogan with Jeff Howe a little bit. And I think that Hogan's definitely uh, a qualifier for this. I'm also, you know, let's, let's talk about another guy uh, and that's Derek Rivers. And Derek Rivers is a guy who wasn't a first round pick last year. Obviously they didn't have a first round pick last year, but he was their number one pick last year. And I expect a lot from him. I talked about him in the offseason a lot. I thought he would be, you know, kind of that other guy to put on the other side of um, of Flowers. And he, not only has he done nothing on the field, he hasn't even been active for a lot of these games. And it's not like he's hurt. He's just not playing because he's not good enough. And, you know, guys like Kenyatta Davis are playing over him. And it's like, what the heck is going on? And so uh, I've been very, very disappointed with Rivers this year. Yeah, and I, you date back to that draft. I remember tweeting it out and, and seeing a lot of reports on it that that was like Bill's guy. You know, he yeah. a lot of people had wrote him for, you know, first, second round talent, and Bill got him in the third round, I believe, you know, out of, out of Troy, a small school. And, I mean, he's got the size, and, and he looked great in college and obviously had the torn ACL last year. But, yeah, definitely been disappointing because, you know, coming into camp, we thought this they had this huge – you know, uh, pass rush with Hightower, Claiborne, Flowers, Rivers, you know, and, and Wise. And really the only one that's been very good at has been Trey Flowers. And we thought right. Rivers would be there. So, yeah. Troy, I think Troy may have been uh, Anthony Garcia. He was Youngstown State. Oh, Youngstown was, State. Uh, You're right. You're right. Okay. I mixed up uh, yeah. Garcia with him. He was the next same, pick, I believe. The I, he was, player. yeah. Yeah. Same, same, same difference. You know what I mean? It's Yeah, it's, small school. Know, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, and then underrated, I, I really, there's two guys here for me. And I think, um, you know, one of them is Lawrence guy. He hasn't gotten a lot of press and unbelievable he, in the run, run defense. Unbelievable. The, the nose, blood, you know, he's, he's the heart and soul of the run defense as far as the, yeah. uh, defensive line goes. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, and, you know, he's, so he's had a good year. Um, and you know, the other guy is Kyle Van Noy and Van Noy is a guy who isn't great. He's not a great player by any stretch of the imagination. But he knows his role and he does his job well. And I think it's, you know, it's almost like he gets a bad rap. And so he's underrated because people think he sucks. And realistically, he doesn't. Now, last year, when Hightower goes out, you put Van Noy into Hightower's role. And he's just not as good as Hightower is. And the rest of the defense gets worse because now the next guy's going to fill Van Noy's role and he's not as good at it. And Van Noy can't make up for it because he's not as good at Hightower's role. And so... The slotting gets all screwed up. But if Hightower's in and playing well, Van Noy can play his role well. And he does it, he does it fairly well. And he's one of those guys, and I don't, you know, I'm not comparing him to Ninkovich. I'm not saying he's a Ninkovich or, or Vrabel type of guy, but he is the type of guy that over the course of the last year or so, the last few years, has made plays 
in moments where they needed a play, whether it was a pick or a turnover. He's kind of been around the ball and made some of those plays. So I think he's a guy that doesn't get talked about quite as much as he should. And I think he's better than a lot of people give him credit for. So uh, so Van Noy will be will be our last underrated there. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm like Felger and Mass here. I'm a big uh, Kyle Van Noy guy. I think he covers sideline to sideline. Like you said, not flashy, you know, not the number one guy on that defense, but knows his role, plays hard, true patriot. I'm a big Van Noy guy. Yeah. Yep. And so last one is the last one is the overrated, uh, most overrated player on the team so far this year. And uh, hate me if you want, but the most overrated player on the team so far has been Tom Brady because he has hot take to end the episode. I'll tell you what, man, you look at the stats and subpar this year. Brady's the goat, right? But man, his stats this year and uh, they're just, they're not good. They're not good. Right. I mean, he's got 17, you know, with 17 touchdowns and seven picks, 94.7 rating. I mean, it's fine. It's just not, it's not where you want it to be. You look at a guy like Drew Brees, who's got like what, 25 touchdowns and one interception. Brady's got one touchdown pass in his last three games. A few and, of those weren't his fault, though, but I, I mean, a pick's a pick, you know. Well, that's true. I mean, that that is very true. Anyone, any quarterback could say that, really, too, though. Also, but, drop passes. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and, and look, you know the stat that people keep throwing up is is the zero touch, uh, one touchdown in the last three games. He had three hundred twenty four yards passing against Buffalo. They smoked Buffalo. They beat Green Bay pretty well. It's not like they weren't scoring. He just wasn't throwing touchdowns. And sometimes that's Brady it's an overrated say, stat. I don't sometimes here if I throw the touchdown, you know. But it's still something that's worth mentioning. He's got seventeen touchdowns through ten games. That is significantly lower than it typically is, and so that's. I saw a you know, tweet today. To look at and just it say, was you know that you know Brady at around whatever week we're at now, his average touchdowns going into this week were like you know if his career were you know twenty two point five or something like that. So I mean, really, you know, that's you're talking five six touchdowns off. That's that's a good amount. That's a couple games, right? Right, and I think the the most comparable year to this year so far was the 2013 year where he had 4,300 yards passing, 25 TDs and 11 picks with an 87.3 rating. And look, they were still good. They still made the AFC Championship game. He had no help around him. I get that. I get all of that. What happened that offseason? They drafted Jimmy G in the second round. Belichick made the comment about his contract situation and his age. And Brady realized that he needed to refocus his attention into what he was doing and changed the way he played and did all these different things. And so I think that's a little indicative as to what's going on right now. It's a similar situation. Hasn't had a lot of pieces. Gronk's been hurt a lot. The receivers have been kind of in and out. You know, you don't know what you're getting from a week-to-week basis. And so that stuff is still in flux, you know, but at the same time, like, it's it's one of those things that it's, it's, it's a little worrisome. Uh, you know, he hasn't been under 100 ratings since 2014. So, you know, it's really – you kind of look at it and say, okay, that's if 2013 is where he's at right now, I, that's not the Brady that I want to see out there, <clears throat> out there. And so, excuse me. And so we'll see what happens moving forward, but, but that's where he's been so far. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I most, you know, overrated might piss people off a little bit, you know? And I mean, like we said, he's the goat, he's the best quarterback of all time, but to his standards, I'm sure he'd tell you, he's not having the year he, he had hoped. And, 
you know, have been used to in the past. And then to this point, he's been overrated. So. Right. Well, and that's, you know, and that's the big thing to remember. And we talk about, he's the most overrated player on the team. And it's just because he's supposed to be the best player in the league. And he just hasn't played that way so far. And people talk about him as if he's the goat and he is, there's no question about that. that He's the goat, but you look at it and say, okay, well, if he's supposed to be playing like a top two or three quarterback in the league, and he isn't right now. And so I think that that's why you make the case for, uh, for the most overrated player on the team. So, so that's what we got. Maybe a little hot take to finish the show, but, but you know, that's what we're here for. Not necessarily hot take, but may look like a hot take, but there's some legitimate facts to back it up. Not, not Felger and Maz facts, legitimate <laughs> facts. And legitimate. So, you know, exactly. So, anyways, that's all we got for the show today. You know, huge thanks to Jeff Howe for coming on the show. Um, again, you know, I mean, you know, we got an author on the on the show, and uh, and it's a great book. It really is. Uh, you know, I'll be honest. I bought the book for the, um, you know, for the interview, and I've really, really enjoyed reading it so far. I'm not all the way done with it yet, but you know, even still I'm, I'm like 120 pages in and I'm dog earing pages and highlighting things and underlining stuff. And cause there's so many interesting stories behind it and so many things that I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that. And so it's uh it's really, really a good read. So again, you know, Jeff mentioned it before, but if these walls could talk is the name of the book, Zolak and how are the writers. And honestly, it's, it's like, 13 14 bucks on Amazon. It's like you just you can't beat it. You order Amazon Prime, you pay no shipping, 13 bucks and it's at your house, you know, in 2 days. So you 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 can't beat it and so I would uh I'd highly recommend it. Yeah, I mean I I definitely got to get on that. Like I said, you you had read the book and I've heard nothing but great things about it. So have to put that one on the uh, on the old Christmas list uh, yes. coming up. Yes, but uh exactly. yeah, uh hopefully you all had a great Thanksgiving and uh Maybe you're listening to this on, on the way to your uh, Black Friday shopping or something. But uh, hopefully you enjoyed the episode. And once again, thank you to Jeff Howe. Uh, Pat, we'll see you next week. All right, my friend. Don't forget to follow the show uh, You know, on Twitter, at Pat's Nation Pod. I'm at P-Lane underscore Pats. Spags is at Ryan underscore Spags. A lot of underscores in here. Underscores. Um, Just like you know, the Pats. Underscores. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Definitely do that. And again, follow, you know, if you're listening to us and you're not following um, or if you're not subscribed to the RSS feed um, for Pat's Pulpit, do that. You're going to get our show. You're going to get the Pat's Pulpit podcast uh, and you're going to get Pat's Blitz, I believe. Um, All three really good shows uh, on one feed and it's going to be all week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So, you know, you can't beat that. So absolutely do that. and, you know, we appreciate you guys listening. And again, you know, hopefully you had a great, great Thanksgiving and no more bye week. We won't have to wait. There'll be Patriots football again, hopefully until the only, the, the only bye week, week is hopefully, you know, get the first round bye and the bye in between mm-hmm. the Super Bowl. That's what exactly. we'll hope for. Exactly. So between now and between now and, uh, and February, hopefully there'll only be two more weeks. We won't, we'll have to deal with no Patriots football. So, but Thanks, guys. I appreciate it as always, and uh, and we'll talk to you next week. See ya. Hello. 
I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. <laughs>